Okay, guys, I think that's it. Take your Bibles now and open, and let's return to our study of the book of Joshua. And I want to read you 15 verses out of Joshua chapter 10. You follow as I read that which we consider to be inerrant, infallible, inspired, the very mind of God is black words on a white page. Here it comes. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to the to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, Zedek king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Deber, king of Eglon, and saying, Come up to me and help me and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, Eglon gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went, Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them. For I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they fled from, fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of the heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord obeyed the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. The grass withers and, um, and the flower fades. But the word of our God... That endures forever. Guys, this battle that I just read you about um, uh, against this five-king confederacy, uh, it presents some real challenges for, for people like us. For example, um, the sheer carnage. Uh, <laughs> the sheer carnage that took place in this battle is the kind of thing that um, that evokes a, a real uproar among among modern people. Not to mention this whole sun stoppage thing. Wholesale slaughter. 
You know, that's never easy to explain, but I'm going to try. But up front, you need to know at least this much. These two armies that are pitted here against each other represent two opposing worldviews. They were then and they are now locked in a titanic struggle for the affections of mankind. You, you cannot harmonize them. One worships God, the other worships man, and thus you have this ongoing, ever-present battle that exists even, even now. But the big picture here in chapter 10, I think, is how God is portrayed. Now, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. There is a lot riding on how you view God, your concept, your, your understanding of what he's like. There's a lot riding on that. And the, and the portrait in this chapter is of a, of a warrior the, the, the warrior of Israel, a God who, who is fighting for his people, a God who defeats his enemies, a God who steps forward and, and crushes his enemies. And ladies and gentlemen, if you didn't see it, let me show it to you. And by the way, there's, it's, <laughs> there's no way that I know of to soften the, the, the picture that's being given here. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, there are four verbs. Now, gang, if you're a serious student of the word and you want to try to interpret the Bible, you know that one of the good rules to observe is always follow the verbs. Find the verbs in the, in this, in the verse and follow the verbs. Because they're going to give you the sense of the, of the text. There are four verbs in verse 10. Look at, oh, and by the way, the Hebrew is is really clear that the subject of all four verbs is Yahweh, is is the Lord. Now look at verse 10. And the Lord threw them into panic. The Lord struck them with a great blow. The Lord chased them by the way of the ascent. And the Lord struck them as far as Ezekiel. Now, granted, guys, uh, um, it's a tad off-putting to see God, to think of God, uh, pursuing his, his enemies like that. It's not exactly what you would call one of the more popular concepts of God. But that's precisely the point of the story. The narrator wants us to see that God is the fighter. He is the warrior. He is the victor who, who crushes the enemy. And in the end, God wins over all of his enemies. And, and when that battle spills over on us, which it does, it's a precious thing to, 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 to be reminded that God fights for us. And then you move to verse 11. And if anything, ladies and gentlemen, the message becomes more emphatic. Did you see it? It's about these large stones and the hailstone stuff. 
that God throws from heaven, these large stones. And then, then we're told right at the end of, uh, in 11, the last half of verse 11, um, that the, the Lord threw down large stones. There was more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. More of them died because of God throwing rocks at them than died at the point of an Israeli sword. Again, not exactly what we're told God is like these days. This some this picture somehow seems to be conveniently left out. So here we sit, 4,000 years later, and by the way, I'm, I'm guessing at the 4,000 years, but here we sit as a Christian church 4,000 years later, and we're eagerly searching for ways to somehow explain this scene, to explain it away, and if that doesn't work, we, we find ourselves apologizing for it. And I want to suggest, ladies and gentlemen, to do so is to make us the losers. If we lose this vision of God as the warrior God who fights for his people, then we are the losers. And I want to explain myself as I go along, but guys, too many folks today think of this picture that you're getting here in Joshua 10 as archaic, as, as unscientific, and it's not fitting our, our sentimental 21st century graven images of what we think God ought to be like. Th- this image in Joshua 10 is just too violent. It's too warlike. And, and it, it, it seems like this one are the ones that are used as examples by the enemies of the gospel to say that Christianity is the primary source of the world's ills. And so we as 21st century evangelicals scurry around trying to, to, uh, to re-explain this or to, to dismiss it or, or to deny it or, or, or maybe even apologize for it. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, we're the losers for having done so. And by the way, the same thing is done to the Lord Jesus with uh, a good deal of help from Sunday school materials that picture him as, um, you know, meek and, meek and mild, wouldn't hurt a little child, Jesus, Jesus, meek and mild, wouldn't hurt, you know, gentle, tender. And, and he is a tender teacher, but he comes across as soft and prissy. As though Jesus comes to us reeking of hand lotion. And I say, guys, we're the losers. You know, that Jesus, he can hardly steal the soul that is being daily assaulted by some kind of temptation and enemy. You know, we we need to hear statements like... um, like the psalmist makes, uh, you know this one, I think it's in Psalm 24. He says, who is the king of glory? He answers, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Where did he go, for heaven's sakes? You know, we need to stop singing songs like the Savior is waiting That's a song that paints Jesus in such a way that he evokes pity. 
not worship. We, we need to, we need to discover the Jesus of Revelation chapter five. You remember the story in Revelation chapter five? You remember John is having this heavenly vision of, and, and he, and he sees a scroll and the scroll is sealed with seven seals. And John begins to, to, begins to weep because there's no one found who is worthy to break the seals. And one of the heavenly elders comes to him and says, that's enough. Stop your crying. Because the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy. He will break the seals. And then all of heaven erupts into this paean of praise. You know, there's not much hand lotion in that scene in Revelation 5. Guys, it's no mild or soft Jesus who can give his people hope. It, it's, it's only, I'm suggesting it's only as we know this warrior of Israel who fights for us. And sometimes it fights against us. That we have the hope of, of triumphing through the muck and the mire of this very complex life we live in. Replace the God of Joshua 10 with the God of modern liberalism. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, we are the losers. God has fought. He is fighting and he will fight for his people. Though I admit and understand that, that, that our circumstances often tempt us to doubt that. I understand that. I've had my own dark nights of the soul. And if, when and if they ever return, please don't come to me and, and, and tell me that, that God is, that God is weak, that he's absent, that he's distant. Tell me, tell me that he's the king of glory, strong and mighty in battle. And you know, if, if God's people were to get a hold of that, I think it would, I think it would affect us. I think it would, I think it would change certain things. And I want to mention four. Four ways that I think this portrait of God in Joshua 10 will help God's people. First of all, the one, the first one that I would suggest is in the text. It's in verses eight and nine when, when Joshua, when God comes to Joshua and tells him, do not fear because I've given them into your hand. What I'm suggesting is this God is one that can reduce our fears. And by the way, that's not the first time this was said to Joshua. That is fear not. That was, that's said four times in the book of Joshua alone. I think you know that the most often repeated command in the Bible is fear not. God says that so much that you would think that God's people would be able to live without fear. But no, no. I mean, if it's if it's not the economy, it's my job. And if it's not my job, it's my kids. If it's not my kids, it's my health. If it's not my health, it's my wife. If it's not my wife, it's the future. And so... In the midst of our fears, see if you can find some, some solace in the, the impotent, the weak, the, um, emasculated God of modern liberalism. 
What we usually need, ladies and gentlemen, is not new truth. It's just truth freshly applied, old truth freshly applied. In the midst of our fears, somebody, I think, needs to remind us to fear not because God fights for me. But let me ask you, does the emasculated God of the modern pulpit, does he help you face your fears? You know, the God who stumbles all over himself trying to make sure that no one is offended? Tell me, which God comforts you? The weak, predictable one that we have made in our own image? Or this one, the warrior God. It's that God that tells Joshua and tells you and me, don't fear them. For I have given them into your hands. So ladies and gentlemen, if you run this God out of town, you can get used to your fears. In an effort to try and illustrate all that, I want to show you something. It's um, it's a YouTube clip. And guys, I never do this. I never do this because, and, and one of the reasons, I think I've done it three times in 20 years. I think one of the reasons I don't do this is because by the time I see it, it's usually gone viral three or four times. You know, I'm so far behind the curve. Oh, look at that. And the world's moved beyond that long. But this is a... This is a clip from ER, a television series that my wife, my wife used to love. You know, I, I don't watch television because I'm a Christian, um, but <laughs> that's just a joke. That's just, but <laughs> this is an ER clip and it's, you know, you remember that, that show on television. It's only two minutes. It's two minutes and six seconds. And I want you to see it because I think it illustrates what I'm trying to say. Guys, could you run that for me? couldn't have known that. God tried to stop me from killing an innocent man and I ignored the sign. How can I even hope for forgiveness? I think sometimes it's easier to feel guilty than forgiven. Which means what? That... Maybe your guilt over these deaths has become your reason for living. Maybe you need a new reason to go on. I, I, I don't want to go on. Can't you see? I'm old. I have cancer. I've had enough. The only thing that is holding me back is that I am afraid. I'm afraid of what comes next. And what do you think that is? Oh, you tell me. Is atonement even possible? What does God want from me? I think it's up to each one of us to interpret what God wants. So people can do anything? They can rape, they can murder, they can steal all in the name of God and it's okay? No, that's not what I'm saying. What are you saying? Because all I'm hearing is some new age, God is love, one size fits all crap. Hey, Dr. Truman. No, I don't have time for this now. Greg, it's okay. Look, I understand. No, you don't understand you don't understand. How could you possibly say that? Now, you listen to me. I want a real chaplain who believes in a real God and a real hell. 
I hear that you're frustrated, but you need to ask yourself... No, I don't need to ask myself. I need answers. And all your questions and your uncertainty are only making things worse. I know you're upset. God, I need someone who will look me in the eye and tell me how to find forgiveness because I am running out of time. Did you hear that? Do you have any answers for him? What are we going to say to him, ladies and gentlemen? What do we say to a culture that wants somebody to shoot them straight? Ultimately, this invalid God that I see on Larry King and Oprah is a God who is cruel. It's a cruel message, ladies and gentlemen, because it ultimately answers nothing. I think our culture needs to hear firmly and yet lovingly. They need to be told about this God of Joshua 10. Offer them this God. Or offer them nothing. Offer them this God or or shut up. Tell them that this God hates sin. But tell them that he loves sinners. Tell them that he has gone to unbelievable extremes in Christ Jesus to make forgiveness available to people as wicked as I am. Tell them that this God has provided a Savior and that all who embrace Him are forgiven. Tell Him that. Or don't tell Him anything. Because there's no hope in anything, this other gobbledygook, ladies and gentlemen. This God is the one that offers hope. That's the first thing that this concept of God will do. It'll reduce our fears and lead to a rise in hope. Secondly, it's this God that will change our view of sin. Guys, can I read you just one verse out of um, the book of Proverbs? Evangelicals, we evangelicals, we love Proverbs. Listen to this. This is uh, 22.4. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches, honor, and life. We love this riches, honor, and life stuff. But did you hear that that's a reward to whom? It's a reward to the humble who fear the Lord. <clears throat> Guys, this, this God, this is a God that's supposed to be feared. But not the one that's trumped up in the, in the media. This God is big. 
And this God puts me in my place. But I don't want to be put in my place. And so I change him. So I can hold on to my elevated views of myself. I can't toy with sin before the lion of the tribe of Judah. But because sin is my love, I turn him into something more accommodating to my lifestyle. Ladies and gentlemen, you must see that much of our offense with this God of Joshua 10, it has to do with our love of sin and our love of self. And what I'm trying to say to you, my brother and sister in Christ, is to replace this God with the one of modernism will do irreparable harm to men's souls because you are giving them a false concept of sin. This God will change how we view sin such that we perhaps won't trifle with it the way we do. Thirdly, this God, Joshua Tin's God, will change how we worship. You know, I've sought to do this before. I've sought to do it years ago. I don't know that I've done it recently. But I've sought to change the way that people just view a worship service, a congregational worship service. Because this is how they normally think of a worship service. They come in and the preacher, the preacher is the performer. And, and, um, the audience is the congregation, you. And God is the prompter of the preacher to the audience. That's backwards, ladies and gentlemen. That's backwards. The preacher is the prompter. The performers is you. And the audience is the grand celestial audience of one. God. So I'm here to try and help you perform acceptably before the audience. And if that's so, then my sluggish, bored, distracted, laborious, can't wait to get out of here worship is being watched and evaluated by the warrior God. Or it's being watched and evaluated by the heavenly invalid. What I'm saying, guys, is a picture of God that is high and lifted up might change the way we worship. And then finally, this God of Joshua 10 will change the way you pray. Um, no more trifling. Because I realize I go into the presence of a king. A king who is mighty in battle. 
we lose this God. And all of those things change for the worse. We regain it and our fears are reduced and our hope is increased. Sin becomes serious to us. Worship is reordered and prayer is changed. All of that influence by how you view God. Which brings me back to my original assertion. And that is, if we change this this picture of God that's found in Joshua 10 into something that is more palatable for us, we are the losers. I close with this, guys. It's just one verse that I didn't read you in my text because I was trying to shorten the text. It's still in Joshua 10. It's verse. It's the last half of verse 21. I'll read the whole verse. This is Joshua 10, 21. Then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makedah. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Nobody dared speak against God's people. Because the fear of God had fallen on the Canaanites. Guys, I, I may be a voice crying in the wilderness, but I, I, I think that God has a similar purpose for his church today. To make her, to make the church a place, a place to be feared. That is a place where people fear to come unless they're serious about this God. Oh, that our, that our culture would learn to fear this God. And that they would be drawn among us because they know that there is something divine that is in their midst or in our midst. And when they come, they hear of Christ. They, they hear a message about Jesus Christ and, and, and they conclude after hearing that message of Jesus Christ, they conclude, oh, that's too good to be true. And we tell them, God is so good that it is true. And it's only a God, strong and mighty, who can deal perfectly with my sin. And he has done so. He's done that very thing in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, forgive us that we um, we toy with you, we toy with your things, we we toy over our souls, we toy with sin, we trifle, because in some measure we've all been influenced by a culture that wants to turn you into a relativistic, pluralistic zero. 
And I pray, O oh God, that you will raise, raise up a church. Could we be a part of a church that um, glories in you and your strength and power and promises to us? Oh God, only a God like you could accomplish what you have accomplished in Christ Jesus, such that people as wicked as we can find forgiveness and restoration. And we glory in the message of the gospel. So now, Lord, would you allow us through every every avenue, through Jeff's basketball and monies to Japan and mission trips in the summer and VBS and pulpit work and classes, would you allow all of it to unite to be that which flourishes and expands the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And we make that prayer, of course, in Jesus' name.